there in Luke 2, actually, and flip also to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 18 through 23. And this is just a glimpse of heaven and what it looks like, what it is like. Revelation 21, 18 through 23. Does anybody want to read that for us? Did I get the handheld? Oh, thank you. Who wants to read? Readers, any readers? Some of you all can read. Thank you. Uh, 18 through 23. Your gold, clear and transparent like glass. The foundation stones of the wall of the city were ornamented with with all of the precious stones. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, or white agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, praise, or something like that. The 11th Jacinth, the 12th Amethyst, I got that one, Um, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each separate gate being built of one solid pearl, and the main street, the Broadway of the city, was of gold, as pure and translucent as glass. That's through 21. So that sounds kind of cool, right? Heaven, it's talking about the splendor of heaven, how incredible it is, and that I'm positive doesn't really do it justice. Uh, heaven is pretty awesome. Paul preached on heaven this spring. It's, it's amazing, and that's where Jesus lives, okay? He is God of heaven. He lives there. That's his life, um, and that's always been his life until something happens. He decides to change things around, and does something that has never been done before. If you want to flip to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, starting with verse 5. Now, God didn't decide to do the whole incarnation thing like 10 minutes before it happened. The Bible says elsewhere that it was before the foundation of the world that Christ was crucified. And so before they even began creation, they foresaw what would happen And Jesus volunteered to go down and redeem mankind. Okay, that happened before creation even started. Um, The whole Messiah thing isn't like plan B. It's not the backup. It's not, oh, geez, this all went pear-shaped. Let's fix it. It was known from the beginning. Before the foundation of the world, Christ was crucified. Um, But in Philippians here, it talks about when that, right before that moment of the incarnation actually happened. So verse 5, Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen? That's an amen spot. There needs to be an amen, right? I'm, I'm going to write it in. 
This is my like fancy preaching Bible, but I'm still going to write amen right there because it's good. Okay, so the, the beginning is what I want to key on here. Jesus, who, in the, though in the form of God, so he was God, right? But he didn't consider equality with God, talking about God the Father there. He didn't consider equality with the Father a thing to be grasped, like held on to, okay? So he didn't hold on to that idea, but instead emptied himself by taking human form, the form of a servant. And so in order for the incarnation to take place, some changes had to be made. Some special things had to be done, special circumstances. Now, there's a number of reasons why. One of which is the glory of God is too strong for our physical being to handle. Okay? I don't know what it is exactly about it, but we learned that in the story of Moses. When Moses is like, God's like, ask me anything. And he's like, I'd love to see you like, with my physical eyes. And God's like, oh, that's awesome. But it actually can't happen. Like, the energy of God is such that your DNA will just scatter and you'll be obliterated. Like, you physically cannot see me, you'll die. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> Spielberg gave it a shot. And so there's something about our physicalness that's incompatible with the full glory of God. Now, this would be a problem for plan incarnation, right? Because the minute Jesus was incarnated in seed form in Mary's womb, she'd die. That doesn't work, right? Everyone who ever saw Jesus would die. That doesn't work. So Jesus had to fix that by setting aside, or switching off, if you want to look at it that way, some of that glory, some of that power. Now, that's not switching off his divinity, his godness. It's just switching off that, those abilities, that aspect of, of um, what God is. And this, this is a big, important thing, okay? Jesus was still fully God, fully divine. He just switched off some things. And the glory there, that, that's one of them. And we see at the transfiguration that God the Father comes down and switches it back on, at least to a degree, because he gets bright and starts glowing, and he's bright white. And God didn't turn it up all the way, or Peter and James and John would have died, and that wasn't part of the plan either. But he turned it up a little bit and then turned it down <laughs> to show Peter, James, and John for sure who this was. At least think, are you sure? <laughs> nice. And... Um, I like the dimmer switch. Um, so, so he turned it down, um, set it aside. The, the, the language that is used here in Philippians is he emptied himself. So there was something that God possessed that he dumped out and left in heaven, presumably. Um, the glory is one, but he is still fully God. If you break your wrist, like someone did not too long ago, that limits your ability. If you break your leg, it limits your ability for a time, right? But you're still you. It doesn't change who you are. It just changes what you can do at that time, right? Losing your power of speech, getting laryngitis, doesn't change who you are. It just means you can't talk right now, okay? So when Jesus did what it's talking about here in Philippians, he set aside parts of his glory, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. It doesn't make him any less God, any less who he is. It's still him. He's just decided not to use those abilities for the time being in order for the incarnation to be possible. Is that, does that jive? You guys okay with that? Okay. So he had to set aside some of his glory so he wouldn't die. He had to set aside his omnipotence. Omnipotence is all-powerful, right? God can do anything. And so God doesn't lack. God never gets hungry. God never gets tired. God doesn't get depressed. He gets saddened, but that's a choice that he makes. He doesn't lack anything. He is everything. 
He's the all-consuming one. The, the self-sustaining one is one of the things that the Bible calls him. He doesn't need anything. He's self-sustaining. Okay? And yet, in Luke 4, when Jesus goes off into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, he fasted for 40 days. And then it's, the Bible says he hungered. Which, as a kid, I always thought that was the dumbest verse. Why do you need to say that? He hadn't eaten for 40 days. He was hungry. Well, duh. Okay? If you don't eat any solid food for 40 days, you will be hungry. That verse doesn't need to be there. But it does, and it's really important. Because by saying he hungered, it's saying, look, he's a human. He is fully human. He switched off that omnipotence thing when he was here. And Jesus was hungry. He got tired. We see that later on during his ministry as well. Okay? So that omnipotence thing was another thing that he turned down, turned off. And the, you say, hey, Nate, what about all those miracles he did? That's all pretty supernatural stuff. Well, Jesus didn't use his own omnipotence for that. He worked through the power of the Holy Spirit, just like we do. So he was a man, a fully human man, who was humbled before God the Father. That's why Jesus went off to pray. Why would Jesus need to pray? He's God. Right? But... He did that, again, as an example for us. He humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He wasn't a servant in that way before. He wasn't not equal with God in that way before. But he temporarily did this to show us the importance of being humble before God. And so he sets aside time to pray so that we would do the same thing. And he heals people and he moves prophetically and he um, casts out spirits of darkness and that sort of thing through the power of the Holy Spirit just like we do. And so that is why Jesus said, hey, all these things I've done, you're going to do, and even more powerful things than this you're going to do. Because it's the same Holy Spirit. And when I go up, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send that Holy Spirit for all of you. And that's, of course, what happens at Pentecost. So he set aside some, turned off some of his omnipotence. Also his omnipresence. God is everywhere at once. Which is something that is like, like, we can't even fathom being everywhere at once. This might be a silly exercise, but close your eyes for a sec. Some of you are already there. Um, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're in a boat, a tiny rowboat. You know, when you're in the boat, it's comfy, it's nice, it's really calm, peaceful sea. You look around, you're in the ocean. You can't see anything but water. It's vast, it's huge. And you're in this little boat, and it's tranquil, and it's beautiful, and it's fun. Now imagine instead of you being in that boat, imagine you are that ocean. Not in the ocean, you are the ocean. And you can feel every little toddler playing in the shore, all along your shoreline. And you can feel the starfish crawling around, blindly looking for food. You can feel the kelp float back and forth. You can feel the depths and the heights. You can feel everything, because you are the ocean itself, all at the same time. Now, that's pretty hard to imagine. But imagine that you're not just the ocean, you're everywhere everywhere in the whole universe, on every planet, every moon, every asteroid, every house. You are everywhere at once. You can open your eyes. It's risky to have people close their eyes this early. Um, so God's omnipresence is something that's very difficult for us to understand. Okay, But he was everywhere at the same time. And then at the incarnation, he was now stuck in one place in space-time. And that's it. He gave up infinity. He gave up everything. He gave up being everywhere at once. And he sacrificed that in order to be stuck in the body of a little baby. 
Instead of being in every room in every house in the world all at the same time, he is now stuck in one room of one house. And to get to the next room, he has to have somebody pick him up and carry him there. Okay? What, we can't fathom what Jesus gave up in the incarnation. He gave up heaven. He set aside some of his glory, omnipotence, omnipresence. He gave those things up for us. He switched them off to show us that love is about sacrifice. And so in his birth, just like in his life and in his death, Jesus shows that love is about sacrifice. And it's, it's just an amazing story to me that God, the owner of the whole universe, became a poor little baby and did all the things that little babies do, like poop yourself. Gross. This is God. He lived at a level so much higher than we can even comprehend. And he left all that behind to chase after you so that you could be adopted into his family. Steve. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so the question is, did he give up his omniscience? or some of it as well. I don't know for sure. I think it's a little harder to prove that one, but I, I suspect probably because of what you said. He grew in wisdom and stature. Well, how do you grow in wisdom if you know everything already? So I think it's a dimmer switch, and I think that God turned up the dimmer switch a bit when he was 12. When he, when he turned 12, which is the Hebrew, he, he, God turned up the switch on his omniscience a little bit when he, when he became a man, um, and that's when we read about him in the temple. And everybody was amazed, right? But again, I don't think he knew everything. Um, but we don't know for sure. That's one that we don't know for sure. But it would make, it would make sense to me that he had to lay, lay a little bit of that down. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So... What, yeah, what he, what he gave up and what he sacrificed is, is pretty incredible. Um, but again, although he was fully human, he was still fully God. Like his, his nature, his self, his substance, his being, he's all still God. He's no less God than he was before. He just put some of that stuff aside, limited himself by his own choice. Um, so he demonstrates his power through humility, which is a weird way to demonstrate your power. But that's what he does throughout this story. So Luke 2, let's turn there. You all know this passage pretty well. Um, anybody want to read Luke 2? Uh, just like the first seven? Seven verses? And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room available for them. Okay. We all know that. 
passage so well. Um, the problem with knowing things really well is sometimes you don't think about them anymore. The brain kind of goes into autopilot. So I want to just talk about this a little bit. So Israel, anybody know where Israel is on the map? I drew a map. There's a, there's a hint. I put a star of David here. So uh, we're going to talk about this more next week, but um, this is the, the Middle Eastern Mediterranean world at the time of Jesus. And I'm not a good artist, and I apologize particularly to, to Chris for my treatment of Greece. Um, but Crete is here. So. Um, so Israel is part of the Roman Empire during the days of which Caesar? Caesar Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And this is the Roman world, and it's not even all of it because it goes further up there. So the Roman Empire is red here, and it's big, really, really big. And just on this side is what's called the Parthian Empire. Persia is part of that. A lot of other things are part of that. So the Parthian Empire, which goes way out here. And these two giant empires fight each other for over 250 years. So at the time when Jesus is born, they've already been at war for 50, 60 years, these two empires. And so tiny Israel here, I made it a different color, but it should be red on this map because it's part of Rome. Okay? Israel is part of the Roman Empire. So this tiny little place sandwiched between two enormous empires. And I think it's interesting that Jesus isn't born in a giant empire, in a giant palace. He's born in the tiniest occupied territory that nobody actually cares about. So it's an outlying province of Rome, meaning it's far away from, from the capital, meaning the people back home at, in Rome, the city, squeeze them for all they're worth in terms of taxes. So we, we, we complain about taxes in America, okay? I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to do that, but uh, we have no idea how bad it can be. So Rome says, hey, we're going to collect a special tax. They already do a ton of other taxes, but this is an extra special tax to help fund this war between us and their neighbor empire that we don't like because they don't look like us. And so we're going to do a special tax, and everybody go to the city of your ancestors, and you have to do that. Now, if Joseph didn't do that, if he didn't take Mary and leave, because this is not an opportune time to be traveling with a wife who's really pregnant, like really, really pregnant, okay? Not a great time to go on a journey through the desert but he has to. If he doesn't, they'll throw him in jail. And if he still can't pay, they'll sell his wife, his fiance, and his other family as slaves until they can pay off the debt. Okay? This is not a good place to live. It's not a good time to be alive. It's not a good time to be in Israel. They are the oppressed minority, horribly oppressed, okay? and very poor. Only a very few people have money, a lot of money in this time. We're talking about real poverty. And God looks down at that mess and says, perfect. Perfect. That is the best time I can think of to send Jesus right now in the midst of this insanity and paganness. People talk a lot about America these days being in trouble and being difficult oh, woe is me, God's going to come up and burn us to the ground. And I'm like, you haven't read this before. Because that's not how God works. When he sees things that are in horrible disarray, when he sees a big mess, when he sees pagan worship going crazy, he looks and says, what a perfect time to send myself to them. That's part of why I believe revival is coming. 
not some great persecution. Because that's how God works. That's what the incarnation is all about. He comes to us so that we can come to him just as we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to get it figured out. We don't have to be perfect so that we can make a nice, neat place for Jesus to show up to. Because we can't ever do that anyway. We come on our knees as we are in humility, just like he came in humility. So Joseph didn't have a choice. He had to leave his home, leave his job. This guy doesn't have a lot of money. He has a trade, which is helpful, but he doesn't have a lot of money. And so when you leave and go on a journey, you're not working. So you're not making money. So basically he loses his job. He has to go stay in Bethlehem for a long time. Because taxes aren't like a letter that you send or something you do on an app. Like, they have to send people around. They have to verify who everybody is. He's there for months and months, probably. Okay? And so he's not working. He's homeless. This is not a nice way for the Son of God to be treated when he comes to the earth. But they had to do it. So they went. They traveled south uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That's like 90 miles, give or take. Now, I'm not an OBGYN. But my wife is. An uber-pregnant woman, should she travel 90 miles in the desert, either walking over hill and crag and rock or bouncing up and down on a donkey, would you advise a patient to do that? That would be a massive malpractice lawsuit if you did, I would think. So this is not great timing, okay? And so again, God is showing us something through the humility of this, through the sacrifice, and through the risk. And it was indeed a risk, because guess what? She shows up in labor. So this induces her labor, this experience. We don't know if she was premature or how premature she might have been. We don't know. But again, risk. This is risky. And that's how God chose to do it. God chose all this stuff. This wasn't random. He didn't randomly choose Mary. She didn't win a lottery. He chose to do it at this time, in this place, with a no-account family nobody had ever heard of with a poor girl, a girl. Girls didn't do anything. They were property. They couldn't vote. They could, well, we couldn't. Women here couldn't vote until 100 years ago. They couldn't own property, okay? They couldn't represent themselves in court. Okay, women were nothing, and God chooses a woman to bring them aside. He wouldn't have had to have done that. He could have done it any way he wanted to. Jesus could have just showed up an adult. Who knows? Could have happened anyway. But he chose to do it that way. And he chose this woman who nobody knew. She wasn't from an important family. She wasn't part of the royal house. See, in my head, I'm like, well, he's going to be an emperor's kid, right? Or an important person's kid. No. Nobody knew who they were. And they were from such a backwater town that when Philip hears about Jesus, he's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It's like Phoenix, except small. I mean, desert and poor and gross. Sorry, I don't like Phoenix. <laughs> but I go there every year to bless people. Um, and it's always 110 degrees. That's, that's the real reason I don't like it, because I have a problem with heat. I was outside a minute ago, <laughs> cooling off. So, so she, she ends up having the baby because of this difficult, risky journey. That fulfills Micah 5.2, by the way, that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. And there's no room for them in the inn. We know that. We know that verse. It, the guest room is, is the term there. No room in the guest room. And it could be talking about a guest room in like a public house like you rent, like an inn. Or it could be talking about the guest room in Joseph's family's house who was there. Because he had family there. That's why he had to go there to pay his taxes. It's far more likely that it's not talking about an inn than it's talking about Joseph's family's house. Because that's how they did things in the first century. You went and you stayed with your family. And guest right was very important in the 
um, ancient Near East. And so the fact that Joseph's family, and they might have been shirt tail relatives, they could have been fourth cousins, we don't know exactly. But even so, even if they're fourth cousins, who turns away a woman who's in labor? Illegitimacy. That's why. I think. Speculation here. But we know that his whole life, Jesus was mocked and mistreated for being a bastard. And I use that word intentionally because it's a little bit offensive, but it's way more offensive then. Pharisees even talked to him about it. Well, at least we're not from illegitimacy. They never let him forget it. Nobody ever let him forget it. He grew up as a kid all the time, people calling him that. People making fun of his mom. God chose that. He could have chose for Jesus to be the second kid to an already married couple, or just let him get married before the baby's born. But no, he intentionally said, you have to grow up discriminated against. He chose that. He chose the pain. He chose the sacrifice. He chose the difficult way. All through the line, he chose the difficult way. It's amazing to me. I think that's probably why the family said, nope, find her somewhere else. So, so wherever she ends up, there's animals there. Okay, she's in a stall of some kind because she lays the baby in a manger, which is an animal feeding trough, as you know. And so wherever she's giving birth, whether it's a barn or, or an outbuilding or something like that, there are animals there. I'm guessing most of you would not allow your child or your grandchild to be born right next to fresh sheep crap. Would you? If you found out your grandchild or your child or your wife was about to give birth, in a place where there were animals doing animal things everywhere, you would get in your car and drive as fast as you can and break every law to get there to get her to a Howard Johnson's at least, or something. A taxi would be better, okay? This is gross. This is, this is beyond hu humility. This is humiliating. Humiliating for anyone. But this is God. He. God the Son created the earth, it says in the word. Through him all things were made. Nothing was made without him, is what it says. And the God who made everything came as the lowest, in the worst, most humiliating circumstances. It seems wrong to me, right? It seems wrong. You would think he would be born in a palace and all this kind of stuff, but no. No, he chooses, he intentionally chooses the most humiliating road. So, to recap, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, has come to us. Finally, Emmanuel, God is with us. Amen. This is wonderful. But how did he come? He gave up the beauty and majesty of heaven and all the things he had to turn off, set aside, empty himself, in order for it to even be possible. Tons of sacrifice. The omnipresence, being everywhere at once, being all-powerful, having to turn that off for the first time in infinity past, that's not easy. That's a huge sacrifice. He's now stuck in the body of a pooping baby. We welcome him with a risky journey, latent pregnancy, that produces labor. He's part of an oppressed minority people group in an occupied territory, and you're occupied by pagans who do terrible things like sacrifice unclean pigs in your temple. That happened. He's discriminated against, unwed parents, okay? He's poor, he's homeless, and right after this, after Herod's decree, he has to run and become a refugee. 
in Egypt for a couple years. We hear a lot about Jesus the healer, Jesus the teacher, Jesus the little baby. We don't hear much about Jesus the refugee. What would you have done if you met Jesus the refugee? How would you have treated Jesus the refugee? How should you have treated him? We have 250,000 of them or more here in the Twin Cities, by the way, refugees. Next time you see one, ask yourself, how should I treat them? Jesus used to be one. That's a digression. That one's free. We'll just keep that. But I think it's a big deal. Um, the creator of the universe was laid to rest in an animal stall. It, this is all humiliating. It's ridiculous. And parenthetically, if you were going to make up a religion and make up a new god, this is not how you would do it. Okay? People who read this in the first century, I guarantee you they thought it was ridiculous. This person you claim is God, nobody's ever heard of him. He's from nowhere. He's done nothing. He was a refugee. This, he's not a god. He's a street rat and a bastard at that. And you're saying he's a god? No. Absolutely not. But then they saw Christ work in real life and through the church. They saw the miracles continue. They saw Christ promise that we would do exactly what he did and even greater things. They saw that fulfilled. And they're like, whoa. Maybe our preconceptions are a little off. Maybe being powerful isn't about strength of arms and how many tigers you own. Caesar loved lions and tigers. He had tons of them. Uh, maybe it's about something else. Maybe power is shown through humility. Maybe love is shown through sacrifice. And... I think that's what God's doing here. So no trumpets, no fanfare, no announcement to the whole world that, by the way, the King of Kings is here. Instead, it's, it's, it's crazy, um, especially looking at it from the outside. So why did God do that? I think to, to us it might seem like a really ridiculous way for Jesus to come to the world, but to heaven I think it was the most beautiful thing that had ever happened because Power is demonstrated through humility, and love is de demonstrated through sacrifice, and in this case, risk. God the Son is now a tiny little baby. If they forget to feed him, what happens to a human who doesn't get fed? They die. If Herod's soldiers catch up to them, what happens to people who get their heads chopped off? They die. This is risk. It's sacrifice. Why would he give up all that for me? I do not deserve that. You don't either, but he did it, and so now you do deserve it because he's adopted you into his family. Steve, you got the mic still? Or? You think it was so that um, he could relate to everybody? I mean, when, when I was in the Marines 45 years ago, you, there were some um, kids that were biracial, and they'd be black but freckles. And they were called trick babies because prostitutes turning a trick if they had a kid. It was a cruel thing That's and nice. it was a mean thing, but I'm sure he was called that and oh, worse. Yeah. And then and then he's born to a teen mom. He's born out of wedlock. He has a stepdad. He has stepbrothers and stepsisters, half-brothers and half-sisters, I should say. Born in poverty, like you said, homeless. I mean, so that when people do come to the Lord, 
they're pretty much without excuse saying, well, you can't relate to me. How could you right. relate to me? You grew up in the palace. And yeah, right, right. So I, I think, I don't know, I think it was so intentional. I don't, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely. It was totally intentional. And I didn't even talk about that much about the family stuff, but his dad died when he was still young, which makes him legally and literally responsible for the whole family. He had yeah. to raise his mom. He had at least six siblings. And he so, was now, he had yeah, at, least at least six. Seven, didn't he? Because he had, well, four brothers and then Four six, brothers and sisters, sisters plural. Two. We don't know yeah, how many there were. Uh, there were at least two because it was plural. So there's at least six siblings that he has to take care of and his mom. Yeah. And that's what he does for most of his life, by the way. This is another freebie, parenthetical insertion. Jesus, the son of God, spent the first 30 years of his life taking care of his family. Only the last three doing ministry. Let that sink in for just a second. God chose to spend the vast majority of his life taking care of his family. This was Jesus. This was God. He could have made a brick into gold and said, here, take care of yourself. I'm going to go get busy. Get busy. He ran a business. He trained up the, the younger sons to run it so that he could leave and do ministry. He spent most of his life investing into his family. That is important. Very important. Your first and best destiny is your family. If God chooses to, you, to partner with you to do other ministry, and you should pursue that, absolutely, that's great. But your family is your first calling, and Jesus did not give that up. 30 is old, especially in the ancient Near East in the first century. 30 is like ancient. Like you've already won the lottery if you're still alive at 30, especially if you're poorer, with a whole bunch of kids to take care of. That's a lot of sacrifice. Oh, I came here to do a job, God. Why am I having to take care of all these kids? He didn't think that because <laughs> he's Jesus, but he certainly could have, and no one would have blamed him for it. He spent most of his life taking care of his family. Okay, so Jesus is born there. The two great empires of the day are at war, and this guy here, Caesar, calls himself, anybody know? The king of kings. Because he is the king who takes over all the other kingdoms. He calls himself the king of kings. The ruler of the Parthian Empire, Babylon, calls himself Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Same translation. They both call themselves the king of kings. And that's a descriptive term that's not necessarily inaccurate, but they definitely meant it as I am a deity because they've made people worship him in both cases. Opposite of humility, <laughs> right? Uh, you should worship me, actually. And imagine how their heirs would have been born. The king of kings has a kid. Uh, imagine that party. Everybody in the kingdom is going to hear about it. They're probably going to be forced to celebrate. They're probably going to be forced to give a special tax to pay for the party that they have for the new king of kings being born. Everybody's going to know. Everybody in the enemy territory is going to know. Oh, our new, our new enemy heir was born. Let's see if we can assassinate him. Um, that is the world that Jesus was born into. Imagine that fanfare and that splendor, and now the real king of kings is being born in a backwater with nothing. And he's set in a manger. It's ridiculous. And that is the statement God was making in all of this. 
You're doing it wrong. You're doing life wrong, all of you. It's not about making yourself great. It's about realizing who you are and that God is great. And by bringing Jesus into this, by having him be incarnate in the insanity that was the first century, God is making a huge statement that power is displayed through humility and love is expressed through sacrifice. And it's a pretty big statement, especially for those who lived back then and heard about this and read this. It's like, whoa, that is so the opposite of the world. God does things very differently. God could have shown up and said, yo, I'm here, everybody bow. But he did not. So interesting to me. So that's the God we serve, a God who is willing to do that, a God who is willing to humiliate, humiliate himself, put himself at risk for our sake, just so that he can adopt us into his family. Um, Christmas is a fun time. It's a fun season. We all love it. If you're like me, just being in December makes you happy. Um, that's me. And I, I, I don't want to take away any of that. When you look at the baby Jesus, I don't want you to say, Nate says we should think only about the sacrifice and not think how cute he is. No, think, that's fine. But I do want you to think about this, this Christmas season. When you look at the baby in the manger, when you sing these songs, I want you to think about everything that Jesus gave up just for the incarnation to be possible. Everything he went through, the great lengths he went to to humble himself in this time to become one of us nasty, smelly people just so he could save us. I mean, that's beyond a shepherd going after a lost sheep. This is us deciding we are going to turn into a drawing on a page in order to save the other drawing crazy. But that's what God did. I think it's amazing. And I think it would be great if during this Christmas season you thought about that too. Along with all the other great things. And if this um, if you haven't accepted the Lord into your heart, this humble king who came to save you, this is the year to do that. Father, thank you for sending your son, which we didn't even talk about that. Good grief. A father sacrificing his only child. But Lord, we thank you that you came. We thank you that you said yes. We thank you that though you created everything and by rights you own everything, you came with nothing, to nothing, and gathered nothing to yourself. You were homeless. You were a refugee, relying on others, ungodly people at that. You went from being everywhere at once to being stuck in one tiny little, I can't even walk, baby. We can't imagine what you gave up. We can't imagine what you went through. But we know it all pointed to the cross, where you would show even more humility by letting your enemies torture and murder you. You could have got rid of all those Romans instantly, snapping your fingers, but you didn't. You chose the hard way. You chose the sacrificial way. You chose the humble way. I pray that we can get this message 
that true power is expressed through humility and true love is expressed through sacrifice. And that we would receive your sacrifice and your love this Christmas season. And help us to be a reminder to others who need to be reminded of what Christmas is. Not in a brash way, but in a gentle way. Because that's how you came, was gentle. Humble. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. Cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with his favor and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And Father, I pray that you bless the food that we're going to receive in a minute. And bless the hands that prepared it and our fellowship time. And bless us all on the roads and all our families and everyone as well. Send a few angels to drive with us and keep us safe on the roads. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul.